the key to understanding this psalm is that they are God's enemies. To have an understanding of how to see our sin and to see our anger biblically, we must first see the proper delineation of who has been harmed, who has been affected, who has been most offended. It's God. So he's praying that God and his witness and his testimony would be known to the people. Today on the Song Time broadcast, we continue our year in review. As we look back over the course of this year, I'll share with you one of my sermons from this past summer as we were in the book of Psalms, talking about how to be angry and sin not, especially when considering the imprecatory prayers in the Bible. Stay tuned for that message. But first, we'll be joined with Kenneth Boa as we reflect on our interviews this past year and talking about his book, Shaped by Suffering. The many voices are coming together for that one message. I'm your host, Adam Miller. You're listening to Songtime Radio. One of the things that I love about our end of the year, sort of year in review programming, is looking back over the course of the year and reflecting on all of the various conversations we've had. In, in fact, it's one of my favorite components of this job is doing our interviews. I like to ask questions. I don't know if you knew this about me. I like to ask questions and I am privileged to be able to talk to some of the leading authors across the globe. And it always amazes me when I have an interview and I'm talking with them as I feel like I'm sitting at their feet. I'm learning from them. It's more than me being able to share these interviews with you. They benefit me greatly. And honestly, uh, I absolutely am so grateful to God uh, for the job that he has given me here at Songtime. Our guest today, as we continue our year in review, is to look back at an interview with Kenneth Boa, who I talked to earlier this year about his book, Shaped by Suffering, How Temporary Hardships Prepare Us for Our Eternal Home. The book is based on 1 Peter, and he describes Peter as the, the New Testament version of Job. I found that incredibly intriguing, so I asked him to expound on that and explain what makes Peter like Job in the Old Testament. I often didn't think of him as the same, but I think you'll see the connection as he shares. Here is my interview with Kenneth Boa in his book, Shaped by Suffering. It's an intriguing thought because he is, is writing with an understanding that um, people are going through persecution and adversity and he's counseling people who are, are just about to face the Neronian persecution or in that context. And as a consequence, he's saying, you're going to be suffering. And, it, and so don't be surprised at the fiery ordeals that come upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you, he writes to his readers. Don't regard this as some kind of a, a condemnation, but actually, if you suffer for the sake of Christ, you're blessed, because you see, to share in his sufferings is to become, to share in his life. And so, the identification in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, but it involves all the heights of, of joy, but also the depths of pain as we cling to his character in the midst of this soul-forming world. So I, I claim that we are being, that God redeems what he allows. I like the take here on First Peter and this theme that keeps on repeating itself. Um, I remember um, talking with a late friend of the ministry, uh, Dr. Warren Wearsby, who, um, ah, yeah, mm -hmm. one of the great heroes of the faith. Uh, Indeed, yeah. But before he passed away, I, I was asking him if he were still preaching today, where would he be preaching from? And he said, First Peter. 
And his, his contention was that we are not prepared for suffering. We haven't thought through it. We haven't considered it. We've avoided it even from our pulpits. And right. I thought that was pretty provocative and pretty provoking. And look what we've been through the last couple of years. It certainly has been something that has taught us the necessity of preparing for suffering. Yes. And the necessity of preparing for suffering relates to what I said before was an eternal perspective in a temporal arena. Let me unpack that a little bit. Because um, in my book, Conform to His Image, which is a textbook on uh, spiritual formation, uh, the second facet out of 12 is what I call um, the, the uh, whole idea of perspective, pers- pers- uh, perspectival uh, spirituality. It's the whole idea of paradigm spirituality. It's the Copernican revolution that needs to take place when you dethrone the self, which was at the center of your solar system, and the and now, which was the analogy of the Earth was seen to be the center. Now it's not the it's the sun, and by a, there's an a- analogous. Um, reformation that needs to take place, a Copernican revolution, a reformation. But what actually happens is you dethrone the self and enthrone Jesus. Mm. What you're doing then is that he must increase. So in this case, it's the sun is at the center, S-O-N, not just S-U-N. And so an egocentric versus a theocentric is our natural default. And so which requires a daily response to choose. And I think when I start off with the, with the, the Lord's Prayer, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom, your reputation, not my reputation, your name be elevated, your kingdom, your will, not my little petty desire. So what I'm doing is dethroning the self and enthroning Christ, but what I'm also doing is realizing that prayer, the key to prayer is not getting what God to do what you want, but rather to conform your will to what he wants. And so in doing so, then you become more like him, as you, as you, but you cannot become like Jesus without adver- going through the, the persecution. It is through many persecutions. So how is it that we've obtained this? Uh, part of it has to do with the, the culture. There's a kind of Camelot syndrome in our culture. It's things are so great, and we don't want to lose that greatness that once was America, but we're failing to grasp we're not home. And so I think, and I'll, I'll say this as well, and Peter is trying to do the same. He's trying to say, no, you've got to cultivate an appetite for heaven. If you don't have it, you'll never be able to contextualize the adversity because you'll see this as all there is. No, the thousand-year perspective makes all the difference in the world. What difference will this affliction be a thousand years from now? Hmm. But at the same time, I'm given the opportunity, even though it's for a very few moments, use it well, use it wisely. And so there's that. These are there are multiple principles, but I see it different because people ask the wrong questions. I speak about four different whys of of, of grief or suffering, if, if if you will, if you want, we can talk about that. I think one of the ways that I've really enjoyed Peter's first letter is just in how it seems to be like a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount in some ways. Mm-hmm. You have the Beatitudes and talking about suffering and, and mourning and and persecution. And then that central theme in Matthew six thirty three to seek first the kingdom of God. It seems that Jesus is teaching us, as you just were saying, in the importance of, of living heavenly in a in a earthly context, is is seeing how these treasures on earth rust and corrode and thieves break in and steal Precisely. and really investing into the things that were eternal and matter more. That's what he's talking about in Genesis, in Matthew 5 and also Matthew 6. And 
Jonathan Edwards put it well when he said that the wisest thing you can do is to treat things according to their true value. Mm -hmm. The most foolish things we can therefore do is, is, and our biggest mistakes are mathematical. We treat the temporal as if it's going to be forever. We treat the eternal as if we can uh, consider that before we die. Nuts. That's crazy. Uh, it's madness. It takes, it, you know, the statistics are impressive. It's been said one out of one dies. It takes no faith to believe you only got a few years left. Don't count them. Don't be presumptuous. Don't suppose you have a year because that's futile and presumptuous. So the wise person then cultivates an appetite for home. And in so doing, and this is what Peter's trying to do, he says, no, this adversity is actually preparing me and drawing me because, as Paul says, when I'm weak, then, then he's strong. And this whole idea, then, I will therefore rather be subject to these things. So without that eternal perspective, they don't want to, they don't have an appetite for heaven because this is all they can think about is just in that, a few years. So unless I can treat things according to their true value, my treasures will be in the wrong place. We've been listening to my interview with Kenneth Boa. His book is called Shaped by Suffering, How Temporary Hardships Prepare Us for Our Eternal Home. And we start to look at all of the experiences in this, in this world as temporary and we start to see the, the vastness of eternity and what we're promised in Christ, it gives us perspective and it helps us to persevere. Uh, this is a great study and uh, one that I think that you would benefit from, which is why we're talking about it today. If you want to find out about this book and many others that we have on our bookshelves, remember Christmas is just around the corner, not to mention my birthday, although uh, don't send me a book. I get plenty of books. But you can always send in a donation to Songtime Radio, P.O. Box 100, Barnstable, Massachusetts, 02630, or give us a call. Ask us about what books we have available on our shelf, and we could fulfill all of your Christmas shopping early. Give us a call, 508-362-7070. Well, today we are continuing our year in review, and we're looking back uh, today in our Summer Psalm series. I'll share with you one of my sermons from Psalm 83. I have to say, uh, I am a bit of a glutton for punishment. I like to preach the harder text of the Bible and break them down into simple terms. And I did that this summer in Psalm 83 when I preached the imprecatory psalm. These are psalms that, that really bring down judgment. We're praying for God to judge our enemies. We might find it difficult to read these psalms, especially in a casual reading, but they are essential. They're important. And in fact, we're called to be angry, yet to sin not. Here is my sermon from Psalm 83 as we think about imprecatory prayers. How are you today when it comes to relating to anger? Do you feel like you have good control over your anger? Is there ever any collateral damage to your anger? We have a very difficult relationship with anger. It's a negative emotion, and we have a hard time relating to it, even when we see it in the Word of God. Maybe you struggle whenever you hear about the anger of God. The Psalms have been written for us as a way to give us some insight into our emotions. But what do we do when we come to Psalm 83? Psalm 83 is called an imprecatory psalm. To implicate is to tattle on somebody. But to imprecate is to take it a little bit further. To not only tattle on somebody, but then to ask specifically for the judgment that you think is fitting for the crime. The Psalms are not simply a way of giving us expressions to the emotions that we already feel. 
The Psalms are actually there to instruct our feelings, to tell us how we ought to feel, to invite us into feeling the emotions that God feels, so that our every part of who we are might be conformed into the image of Christ. And I don't think there's a better way to do that than to look at the imprecatory psalms, because these are psalms that we have a very hard time conforming to. It says, O God, do not keep silent. Do not hold your peace or be still. These three words, silence, peace, and still, are all kind of variations of a similar theme. Uh, This is the idea of indifference, and the psalmist is arguing, or at least suggesting, that it seems that God is indifferent to their struggle. Whenever it feels like God is far away, God is not the one who has moved away from you. It's us who have moved away from God. That's what the psalmist is experiencing. As the next verses, verses 2 through 8, describe this ten-nation army surrounding Israel, ready to attack, as it says in verse 4, it says, Come, let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. When Israel was called and commissioned to come into the land, God told them that to, to drive out all of the people. And they had some initial victories at the very start. They were doing really great when they got to the wall of Jericho. They had a little hiccup at Ai, but then they moved on and they had victory after victory. But after a while, they grew weary in fighting. And so they decided to cohabitate with the tribes already in Canaan. This cohabitation had led to, to a mixing of their religions and intermarriage, and all of a sudden the people had become lost in their relationship with God. And that is what led them to the predicament, that they were surrounded now by ten nations. These were the people who were trying to fight against God, and the thing that we must remember in this is that as the, as the psalmist is writing, he is describing them not as our enemies, The key to understanding this psalm is that they are God's enemies. That they have sinned against God before they ever sinned against us. To have an understanding of how to see our sin and to see our anger biblically, we must first see the proper delineation of who has been harmed, who has been affected, who has been most offended. It's God. So he's praying that God and his witness and his testimony would be known to the people. Verse 13, O oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, as fire consumes, consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze. So may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Are these really something that we can pray? And if so, how can we pray these words? Well, Jesus actually teaches us how to pray imprecatory prayers. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, he teaches us how to pray. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then he goes on to offer a little bit of commentary specifically on that one line. Because it's really important that we don't just pass over it. He says, because if you don't forgive your enemies their trespasses, your heavenly Father won't forgive you your trespasses. Okay, then how can we read these words of judgment and imprecate our enemies if by doing so we're only going to bring judgment on ourselves? Well, Jesus goes on in chapter 7, Judge not, lest ye be judged. First, he says, 
Take the beam out of your own eye. Why? Because then you'll see clearly how to help your neighbor with the speck in their eye. What Jesus is doing is teaching us that this first applies to you and to me. We should pray the same way against our own sins because the problem, the reason we still struggle with sin in our life is because we don't take it seriously enough. Brother and sister, let me explain this to you. We cannot be glib about our sin. You must understand the weight of it. Israel serves as one of the greatest metaphors to not dealing with sin. They kept falling and their hearts were constantly being pulled away from God. It's a reminder to us that sin must be dealt with and it must be dealt with effectively. It says, so, that, so you may pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. There's a reason for this, that God brings shame when we sin because shame brings us to a place of brokenness. The psalmist is not simply praying for the destruction of people. He's praying that they would understand the holiness of who God is, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. This is what should motivate us. This is what should instruct us. This imprecatory prayer should actually transform us. By picking and choosing the verses that we want out of the Bible, we create a theology that does not give us a calling to go and transform the world in which we're living. What would give us conviction that there is something wrong that needs to be fixed? And for no other reason, we ought to be proclaiming our faith because God is worthy. So when we see the wickedness around us, it should break our hearts. Christ died for those sins. God is not the one who is remaining silent. We are the ones who are remaining silent. We have become indifferent to the world. And we need the imprecatory psalms to teach us once again to be furious, furious with what is happening in God's creation. And to teach us to be introspective, a reminder that this must first be applied to us. But I can tell you, that the sins of the world don't bother us nearly as much as they bother God. We only care about the sins of the world when they affect us personally. But it's not about how they affect us. It's how they affect God and how that effect was laid on Christ, who is the propitiation of all of our sins. So maybe in your past you've read through the imprecatory Psalms and maybe you've said, I'll leave that for next year. Don't cut them out of your Bible. Don't skip over them. Press into them and learn the true fever and, and fury of God towards sin so that you can truly be angry and sin not. So the question remains, how do you relate to anger? Does it still make you uncomfortable? In reading the imprecatory Psalms, does it make you a little bit out of place? The Bible calls us to be angry, to align ourselves in the same way that God sees the world and his economy. Unfortunately, we are so outside of that, and we're not called enough into his presence, that what we've done is we've manufactured a God who is unlike the God in the Bible. 
That's why so many people struggle when reading through portions in the Old Testament where God seems angry and he's judging the world. Well, all you got to do is read the book of Revelation. That is in the New Testament. Or even Jesus' encounters with the religious leaders or uh, turning the tables over in the temple. If Jesus could express that sort of vengeance and anger, and in fact, it is Jesus who is returning to judge the living and the dead, then we shouldn't have a problem with the Old Testament. The problem is with us. We don't relate to God's anger because we don't want a world that is going to be judged judiciously for their sin. But praise God, you and I are not judged in that manner. We are judged by the graciousness of God through the perfection and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In fact, we're not judged by our good works any more than we're judged by our bad works. The truth is, we are judged by the work of Jesus. When you consider that in its context, it makes sense then that God in his holiness and his righteousness cannot tolerate sin. In fact, he can't even tolerate our good deeds. To him, they're filthy racks. The only thing that he accepts from us is the righteousness of his son. The only thing that we add to our salvation is the sin that needs forgiving. And in this, we can read Psalm 83 with comfort, as well as aligning with God, knowing that we have been saved from God's judgment. And because of that grace, we ought to be compelled out of love and devotion to God to share that message of hope to a world that is hurting and a world that is facing the judgment of God. I hope that we've been able to encourage you today and maybe even inspire you to read some of the harder texts of the Old Testament, including Psalm 83. And if we have, let us know. We'd love to hear from you, especially for this, our year in review. It's really a fundraiser. We need your prayers and support. The only way that we can stay on the air is with your generosity. So if you have been blessed, consider being a blessing in return when you write to us at Songtime Radio. P.O. Box 100, Barnstable, Massachusetts, 02630, or you can give us a call. It's 508-362-7070. You can also head over to our website at songtime.com, or you can look us up on social media. Don't forget, as we continue our year in review, this is your chance to support the work that we're doing. And on behalf of everyone here at Songtime and our late founder, Dr. John DeBrine, who has always encouraged you to grow in grace so that you won't groan in disgrace, we want to thank you for listening. From Cape Cod, I'm Adam Miller with our theme verse for this year in review, Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him.